Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 58th ever episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. My name's Quentin Smith, and I will be your Venetian guide atop this canal of games. Uh, I'm uh, polling us down <laughs> the, the passage. Uh, look out, don't fall overboard. And who's my passenger on this trip? Why, it's Paul Dean. I'm I'm singing to you from the prow of this uh, small gondola about how wonderful board games are. And I'm so enthused that occasionally you have to tell me to duck because I'm looking at you and I can't see where the ship's going. And there's a bridge approaching and I could bang my head. It's a metaphor for how much I'm into the hobby. Paul, yes. uh, we, are, we have announced something very special this week over on the site. We have announced uh, the first Shut Up and Sit Down convention. And we're going to get this out of the way yeah. before we talk about all the great games we've got coming up this episode. Uh, Shucks is its name. And it, really, I think the reason we're doing the convention is we came up with the name Shucks for Shut Up Expo. And it was such a good name that we had to do a convention. Um, I think didn't we sort of come up with the the, the various uh, acronyms first, and then tried to sort of retrofit some event around them? I mean, yeah, that's I feel the truth like of that acronyms, was what happened. Right? You you come up with a cool like, acronym, and then you try and squeak the words in like into that that series of letters. Anyway, this will be in yes. Vancouver in October. Uh, Paul, what can the people expect if they attend uh, three solid days of shark sing? Are you going to expect us, first of all, you, me, Matthew, also Pip and Cynthia, and also a bunch of other guests that we've invited that include interesting game designers like Jonathan Ying and Isaac Vega and Alan Girding and Jay Cormier and other people. And this sort of constant rotating uh, live panel, live event thing going on, we're going to have loads of open tables for games, which I think is like the standard thing at Mm -hmm. a board game convention anyway. But we also want to run live events like a couple of live podcasts, talks, interviews with uh, games designers, panels, that sort of thing going on as well, which I think is going to be really interesting. A couple of new games being debuted. I don't think I'm spoiling secret. I should probably say that Alan Girding will be showing off a new prototype there, for example. The designer of Two Rooms and a Boom. Um, some key board game publishers as well will be turning out with new cool stuff. And uh, we're increasingly getting lots of indie smaller studios who uh, have decided that they want to come along and sign up as well. So we've decided to make an indie space for those guys. And we still have more stuff coming. Sorry, I got a bit, a bit excited. Calm. Bring it down. It's good. We're going to have three <gasps> mega games that people can attend if they've ever I seen forgot. our mega games oh, yeah. video. Yeah, the, that's, yep. and that's <laughs> so. Of course, people can come and play board games and buy board games and buy Shut Up It's Down merch. But the it, the idea, the inspiration was kind of a bit like a a stage at a music festival that we're going to have a side room with about a hundred seats. And then people can just sort of file in there. And instead of music, it's us making the sweet music of our mouths with guests. We're not going to be kissing them. I made it sound like we'll be kissing them. That's not going to happen. Anyway, if you're interested to coming to the big show in Vancouver this October, you can go to shutupandsitdown.com slash shucks. I think I'm correct. Yes, Sh- or slash shucks 2017. Yes, thanks, Paul. Slash shucks. Oh, there is a button S- on the front page. Okay, yeah, rather rather than <laughs> reading out the URL like it's the year 1999, go to com. click on the button that says Shuck17. At the time of writing of our 750 tickets, there are only 129 left in stock. So, oh, really? Uh, yes, so if you would Ooh. like to come, 
then definitely uh, jump on that. But if you don't manage to get a ticket, don't worry, because hopefully, uh, unless someone dies, we'll be doing a bigger <laughs> show in 2018. We should. Yes. Speaking of speaking of shows, we should get on with that. Uh, what we've going on, what we have got going on today. Uh, I'm, I'm so worried now. I'm just worried that, that people are going to be like, what was the shut up and sit down expo? Like, was it good? Ah, oh, someone died. Well, here's the thing, man. If like someone dies because, you know, we didn't secure a stack of board games and they're crushed to death, that's on us. That's fine. I can deal with that. But what if like two people have heart attacks through no fault of our own? Does that like then destroy the Shucks brand? I feel that, like, there's a couple of... People are going to backtrack that one space and be like, why? Was it because they, they ate something? Was it because they a, a game was really good and very exciting? Like, one of the mega games got out of control? I, I, and that maybe affects how people report it. Like, oh, how, was one of, the, how was Shucks? Oh, it was great, someone died. Or, oh, it was terrible, someone died, you know? Well, this is the thing. Humans are always uh, looking for um, patterns in the chaos that is just yeah. life. Humans don't like to think that... in in reality, there's no control over anything and things just happen and life is unfair. So if people have heart attacks, they're going to look for the pattern. They're going to look for what we fed them or how exciting our podcasts were and they're going to blame us even if it's not our fault. So, yeah, I'm, I'm worried, but... Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> games we've got coming up today. Uh, yes. Paul, you've been playing Fields of Arl, uh, the UA Rosenberg yes. Giganto box. Um, I oh, have been playing... Huge. Spoils of War, um, the new game from Arcane Wonders, publishers of the excellent Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, I've also been playing Conflict of Heroes Guadalcanal, um, my first, pro- probably my most wargamey war game, and we're going to talk about that later. And Paul, you've been thinking about Lost Valley of the Dinosaurs for some reason. Yeah, I have. Hmm. Do you want me to? Do you want me to fire off with this? Because this took me right back to being like I was eight years old. Well, hey, we're going to tell you what, let's lead off with that right after I tell you why I am a modern boy. Okay, so uh, people think Quinn's, if I say Quinn's poll, what do you think? What are the what are the adjectives that come to mind? Uh, well, we go back quite well, way before Shut Up and Sit Down. So I, for some reason, I keep thinking that we're in a trip somewhere, like we're in uh, Amsterdam or Ireland or, you know, one of those things that we did or we're in Birmingham in a car and we're lost because that happened once. What I was fishing for there, Paul, is you <laughs> telling true. me that I'm a modern man. Uh, I, isn't, isn't that yes. right? There That's you go. So being a modern man, I've downloaded the app that all the kids are using uh, to track their board game plays. This is uh, called the BG Stats app, available on iOS and I think Android now. And uh, it's a whole load. Every time you play a game, you punch in your plays. And then do you know what it does, Paul? It tells you what you just did. Yes, exactly. Now, if I want to know what board games I have played in my life, I just fire up this handy app and I can see what board games I've played. And Paul, oh, so I'll it's tell like you what. a Fitbit. It's sort of like when you walk around, it's like you've been walking around, and you're like, "Yes, I know." <laughs> it is exactly that. And uh, but here's the crazy thing, Paul. Using this app, I can data mine my board gaming hobby and discover secrets that you or I <sighs> were not to know. I've logged more than a hundred plays of different board games, uh, and let me tell you, this app. And I've paid for the premium version, so I can see. Data is crazy. Mm-hmm. Can can you even begin to guess at what I've discovered? I, quite seriously, I cannot. 
Tell well, me. I, that, Tell me that doesn't you. surprise me. Okay, so over 100 plays and months of using the BG Stats app, the revelation that I have had is... Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what is it? <laughs> only 3% of the games I play take place on a Tuesday. Isn't that, I mean, that, that's, that's worth your £1.49 right there. Uh, what else have I got? Um, what, what have you got? Uh, my friend Ian only wins 16% of the board games he plays. Um, that's about one in seven. Uh, so if you would like to use the BG Stats app and have all that data, well then, hey, shut up and sit down. It's a thing that we know all about because we're also modern. Um, so, Paul, let's get to the board games. Tell me about Lost Valley of the Dinosaurs. Speaking of modern well, things, Jesus yeah. Christ. I'm going to grab us uh, by the tail and drag us right back to the middle of the 80s or something, I guess. This, oh my goodness. So I've been on another one of my sort of looking backward trips, I guess kind of recently, where I've just accidentally decided to go back and coincidence or circumstances or whatever have me looking at things I played when I was younger and I've been looking at a lot of old choose your own adventure game books and things yes and then i started just rummaging around on ebay for things that i maybe owned in the past and i thought oh lost value of the dinosaurs that's a game i remember oh it's only a few dollars on ebay and i didn't realize the copy that i was looking at i'd actually have to ship all the way over from the uk and that that was one of the things that put me off and the other one was remembering that this was quite a long time ago and my perception might be off and looking at pictures of sort of kind of rubber plastic dinosaurs where their eyes are a bit too big and they look alarmed <laughs> rather than terrifying. And okay, then it all so, sort of came back of like, ah, oh, this might this might not be very good. Well, it might not be. So here's my question to you, Sira. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, Rob Davio and others' new company, Restoration Games, taking these old 80s games that people have a lot of nostalgia for. Yeah. Like uh, Stop Thief is, I think, the one that just ended on Kickstarter. Um mm-hmm. Would you rather have Lost Valley of the Dinosaurs, the original 80s version with the ridiculous, like, dinosaurs that I remember were made out of, like, the same material that pencil erasers are made out of? Yeah, um, that was it. Or would you rather have Restoration Games' new, updated, and actually good version? I, I actually think it might make for a decent reboot because... There are some things in this game that I think would still be very cool today. You have, you've got this bunch of explorers, you send them into this lost valley and you just want to pick up coins uh, from a sort of a temple and then run back out again. And you have these rivers that run through a marsh, you have these dinosaurs that all the other players can move around and a pterodactyl that can fly down and pick people up and drop them in their nest. <laughs> and this, which is like, it's very feely and tactile. And that was part of the appeal of it at the time. It had lots of different very visual things going on like you've got this big volcano that gradually spills lava and you put down lava tokens oh yeah and it's one of those it, games it, and more and more of the board becomes unplayable right i remember this and i also yeah. remember that the pterodactyl had it was like a little action figure that meant you could pull back a lever on its back and then its claws would open so you could physically clasp the players yeah. when it picked them up and flew them over I, that's that's the 80s for you that's that's some design on cocaine for you it's and the thing is like a lot of this now looks like not bad i think it's mainly like card driven you draw cards and the cards are like the you know dinosaurs move this turn or the um uh the volcano volcanoes a little bit more this turn (laughs) it's roll and move which i think is an awful idea for you know because you're going to move six hexes or you're going to move one hex on your turn and there were i remember rules like you go in the river and the river slows you down 
Mm. And if you're having a horrible roll and move time anyway, you're only going to have a worse time as you try and cross this river. But if some of those mechanics got slightly altered or we just got rid of roll and move, we replace something like you have this many moves you can make between this many people. Well, if you have the the card-based movement from K2 or Flamme Rouge, where everyone has... You still get random movement, but everyone has the same distribution of numbers so that it's fair and you can do card counting and probability and stuff. You have maybe a better idea of what's going on. I think it might not be the most amazing game, but I think it could be interesting and enjoyable and a good thing for younger players. I'm more interested in that you chose not to pull the trigger. Was it just shipping? Because I talked about on this podcast before about my desire to own a load of VHS board games from the 80s and expand my collection with some of those old classics. But I haven't done it either because it just seems like, uh, I don't know, self-indulgent? It... It was a combination of me thinking, you know, this is not actually going to be hilariously a couple of dollars in postage. It's going to be like 50-something dollars to get this over from the person selling to the UK and Canada. It was a combination of that and a combination of, like, I'm interested in this right now while I am in front of my computer looking at it. (laughs) Am I going to be this excited when it turns up and looks a little bit battered? And I play it with some friends and they go, that was silly. Uh it's definitely the the rose tinted glasses thing and it was that realization and i think what i might do instead is try and dig up if there are pdfs or old copies of game books that i used to play because that would be easier and cheaper and if that really disappoints me then you know i've i've filled my world with less physical tat instead hey i'll tell you what uh, as, as far as 80s nostalgia goes this monday this coming monday i'm playing um a role-playing game with some friends called Tales from the Loop, which is all sort of... Uh, it's its an RPG set in the 1980s, uh, in a 1980s that never was, basically. But it has a rule that I'm really looking forward to springing on my players, which is during character creation when you invent your teenager because you're all playing like kids, like in Stranger Things. Um, you have to... You write down the 1980s song that is your character's theme song. And so oh, partially to get, to get every all the players in the mood, but also um, like to give the GM some more control over like uh, f- framing certain scenes around certain characters. Like when you introduce different kids in the story or if a kid does something really awesome, you can put their song on, which I think is like the greatest rule I've seen this month in anything. That is really nice. And I, the thing is, this has been, I think, turning up at people's houses and something recently, hasn't it? Because I see it mentioned a lot on social media. Oh, it's, well, it's being it's talked very- about so much. It's very zeitgeisty. I think 1980s nostalgia-related media is quite big. The art, the art is so immediately striking um, that it's very shareable. In fact, I think the Swedish artist who does the sort of like sketches of the 1980s but with sci-fi stuff in the background or foreground, um, I want to say that it was one of the cases like Scythe where there was this online artist's work being shared everywhere and then a game designer comes up and says, hey, you know what? Your work's already being shared everywhere. Let's do a game in this world. Because, of course, Scythe was based on the drawings of those, like, agri-industrial drawings um, existed before Scythe did and it was a case of Stonemaier Games going, this is great, let's... We'll buy your world, sir. And the artist says, I don't know how it works. And then the designer says, doesn't matter, we'll fill in the blanks. But, yeah, tells from the... Tales on the Loop, it looks interesting. I'm going to be talking about it on Shut Up and Sit Down more uh, after the summer uh, as we do a thing that I will reveal later. Um, but for now, Paul, mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about Spoils of War. Um, or more right. accurately, this... yeah, 
I'm going to complain a lot about Spoils of War. Spoils of War um, from Arcane Wonders um, is a big box uh, about Vikings trading loot. I was excited for it because Arcane Wonders have released some great games in the past, like Sheriff of Nottingham and Mage Wars. And more than that, Paul, Spoils of War is based on Liar's Dice, which we might which have even talked-, talked about. Bef- we have mm. talked about this before, and it's actually remarkably good fun. It's a game that has been around for a long time and has not aged, it feels. Yes, it's exactly like poker. And in fact, if you go to China, which I was lucky enough to do some traveling when I was younger, and there are nightclubs in China where the sound system is is not as loud as the sound of everyone playing Liar's Dice. It's a very popular game in Asia, but it's all over the world. And the reason it's all over the world is because it's so good. Um, very simply... Uh, Liar's Dice is any number of players and you all have like eight or an amount of dice in a cup or maybe six dice. You all shake the cups and you all look at your dice and then you go round and round the table um, bidding a number of dice uh, that you think are around the table under everyone's cups. So on my turn, maybe I start the game by saying there are five twos. And what I'm saying there is I think there are five twos around the table. And we go clockwise and everyone ups the bid. So they could say five threes, that counts as upping the bid, or they could say six twos. They just have to increase one of those two numbers. And uh, you go round and round until eventually someone says something like, I think there are 12 sixes. And then a player can call them and go, no, that's that's just not true. And then you check to see if there are 12 sixes, because of course everyone can only see the dice in front of them. So everyone has a little idea, but not much. And if um, a player is caught out, then they lose a dice. Um, but if they're correct, then the person who accused them loses a dice. And then you keep doing that until someone's lost all their dice and they're the loser and they buy the next round of drinks or whatever. It's a <laughs> great, great bluffing and betting game. So Spoils of War, uh, yeah, uh, uh-huh. 2017, enter Spoils of War stage left. It comes with all the dice and some cups. And it's basically trying to be like, what if Liar's Dice but nerds, right? What if Liar's Dice but we had all these special powers and cards and additional rules? I thought you were going to say that. I don't know very much about this, but I immediately had this idea that it's going to be about introducing cards or things that that play with the the mechanics somewhat. Right, so that's what I thought as well. It's what my friends were expecting. So we were were really psyched to get it to the table. Now, three egregious things from least to most annoying. First off... Ah, the word spoils of war is on everything except the dice, mercifully. So everyone's personal player screen has spoils of war on it. The cups have spoils of war on it. The back of the cards have the word spoils of war on it. Like, by all means, you know, have an aggressive logo (laughs) on your box. But like when I buy your game and take it home, give me a nice object. Don't make me look at your logo 400 times. Like, I was so in love with the deluxe card games that Zedman were putting out last year because every card back was just a really beautiful card back. You know, the logo was seen on the front of the box and then never again. Anyway, mm-hmm. so that's 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 nitpicking. The bigger problem is that, or a bigger problem, is that instead of losing dice in Spoils of War, you fall behind in set collection because the game is, um, if you... Oi vey, um, so... When um, players are, uh, like if I say there are 25s around the table and Paul, you say, that's nonsense, there aren't 25s, then um, it's not just a case of which of us is correct because then you and I will secretly bet um, money that we have behind a screen on how correct we are and so does everyone else, okay? And then you'll reveal and then players will bet and they'll be right or wrong on who won 
And then depending on who bid the most on the winning side, they get first pick of the cards on the table. And what you're doing with these cards is set collection, so you're trying to get like one of every kind of weapon, or one weapon, one armor, one jewelry, all that stuff. So unlike But you're also still simultaneously losing the dice, right? That mechanic remains in there. No. Oh, mm. So mm. whereas whereas okay. Liar's Dice has this thing where you gradually lose dice, so just like in Skull and Roses or Skull, um, or Cockroach Poker, yes. it gets harder for you to play, but you're always still in the running. You're still in the running, rather. Um, in Spoils of War, you just kind of fall behind on set collection, and if you had a bad first few rounds, you know you've lost, which is terrible. But way worse, and totally unforgivably, in terms of butchering the classic game of Liar's Dice... Um, because Liar's Dice is good because you gradually amp up the betting and it's very slow and there's a wonderful tension in Liar's Dice because you want to increase the betting without anyone calling you out because the game of Liar's Dice is just to survive, right? Yeah. So you get this very slow, cautious increase of betting until someone just can't take it anymore and they go, no, you're, you're, you've got to be lying. You have to be lying and that's the joy of it. But because in Spoils of War it's about betting and everyone have to bet, there is no advantage or disadvantage to being the one who is called out or not which means betting immediately just becomes someone going okay i think there are 11 sixes because if they're called out that's not any worse for them than if someone else is called out um so betting immediately lurches to ridiculous numbers and the uh, the the slow build of liars dice is obliterated and then suddenly it's like well why did you even use this format in the first place like why uh, anyway I I feel like I've taken up too much of the podcast's runtime complaining no, about this. It's it's interesting, but I don't quite see how it, how it works. Yeah, or I don't see how how it's as entertaining. It's not. It's 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 not. It's it's liars dice, but you have to. In my humble opinion, you know, my friends and I found that it was liars dice, except you have to pay thirty five pounds for it, and it's uglier and less and more complicated and a much less entertaining game than Liar's Dice. Um, so Shut Up and Sit Down categorically does not recommend Spoils of War. Oh, God. In fact, I'm only talking about it on the podcast because I thought it was such a such an aberration from what Liar's Dice is and should be within the gaming consciousness um, that I just wanted to come online here and say, oh, my God, this is a classic game and this is absolutely not a good adaptation of it. Um, but if someone, if a, if a publisher out there wants to make a really strong dorky version of Liar's Dice, I'm more than happy to try their version because I think that game should exist, but Spoils of War, oh, it's not it. It's not it even a little bit. It's not it. I You'd rather think. just still have half a dozen mugs in your house with some Abs- dice. Absolutely. And that's free. I mean, assuming you have the dice, that's free. Um, and or then the maybe... Mugs. And just bet like a pound each just so you have not much at stake, but enough just to give that game that base <laughs> level electricity. Yeah, I think. Um, so let's let's move on. Uh, Paul, I really am excited to hear about this next game. For- so Fields Fields of Arla, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Okay, is the the current Uwe Rosenberg, and I think I'm saying Uwe Uwe Rosenberg game that that I am sunk into. And this is the gentleman who uh, created Agricola quite a while ago now. I think Agricola is ten years old, and it was one of the first games that really jump-started me back into modern board gaming. He did uh, A Feast for Odin, which I reviewed a few months ago now. Really, really enjoyed A Feast for mm. Odin. And he 
tends to do these games that are Eurocell worker placement and they're sort of very bucolic and rural in some way that they involve farming and making and collecting things like getting a bunch of animals and then using those animals to get a bunch of milk and from those animals you could also get some leather or you could get some cheese and you make important animal choices like (laughs) do I keep this animal and make more animals or do I eat this animal do I put it in my mouth or do I put something that comes out of the animal in my mouth (laughs) all those choices you know that people used to make in history before they couldn't uh you know like statuses and retweet that's what our, all our yeah, ancestors yeah, were doing absolutely. and I didn't know this when I picked it up but it's actually uh, it's only two player it's head to head Right, and I was stunned. Real... I only found this out just before we started recording the podcast because every other big box Uwe Rosenberg game is for like one to five, like maybe four or one people to four. or something. Yeah, yeah, like a feast road in uh, ra- actually rattles along at quite a decent pace once you get used to it. But there's a lot in the box, and that's for four people. We we re- when we reviewed Caverna, was that maybe four people or was it? six which Caverna I mean, might be lot. one of those bonkers games where it's like it goes up to six but my god why on earth would you play it with six because there's no player interaction so it would just slow the game down well yeah so here's the other thing it's it's still similar that there's very limited interaction between you you pick actions um that What's are divided the game about, into... by the way oh right it's it's another bucolic farming type thing where you basically you set up a small farming community or a village you start with just some open fields that don't really have much in them apart from, like, some peat or just swamps. Uh, and ideally, you want to clear some of those and turn them into usable ground. You also have um, sort of irrigation or dikes that you can gradually expand, like your um, almost like you're claiming ground from the sea or something, where you gradually expand the area that you can build into, and obviously more area that you build into allows more pastures for animals and... Uh, ideally you're going to get enough resources in in time that you can build like a, a church or maybe even a castle oh wow that escalated um, well, i thought it would be a like a castle. where if you're really really good then you can have like two kids and a, and a, a kiln so there's there's less sort of family type growth you have four family members and they can do like four different things in a season and a game's chopped into seasons there's summers and there's winters and depending upon the time of year you can or you can't do certain things which you know makes sense it's supposed to reflect what you could do historically during a certain season um but there's still not very much sort of you don't tread on each other's toes very much and even if you do claim an action that somebody else wants there's actually an action space on the board where you basically can put someone on this particular action space, burn a few resources, and then just copy what someone else has done, which is a way of doing what they're doing anyway, even though they've taken the space. Right. And so my question then is that if... Uh, it, but this is... This this game kind of like falls off my radar because obviously the, the Uwe Rosenberg farming game that everyone knows is Agricola. And then he's got the fantasy yes. farming game, which is Caverna. And then Fields yes. of Arl just seems to be like farming. The but historic it, fantasy or village building. It's, okay. It's interesting to me that because the first of these I tried was Agricola and Agricola feels the most cutthroat as well. It's the the one where like if you cannot do the thing because somebody else did the thing, then, you know, the, you, you get this sort of passive aggressive, I am going to take this thing so that somebody else can't do it. Right. Which uh, isn't always the most exciting game mechanic for some people, but it's sort of a valid thing. And it's what some people really enjoy about that game is jumping to the front of the queue or trying to find ways around that. A thing I really liked about Feast Road in was 
there are lots of different things you can make in the game and there's lots of ways where because there's so many choices you can make with your workers when you place them it feels like if someone beats you to something you have an alternative instead and fields of Arla feels a lot like that as well you make so many different resources you um end up with like three different types of animal and you have things where you like <laughs> resources the and then you you go <laughs> You go on journeys to other towns and you then deliver those resources to those towns and then journeys itself are like a thing that you can invest in or you can be invested in just trying to get lots of goods or you can be more invested in trying to build lots of buildings. And I like that. I like that it's like maybe you can't do this thing this turn, but you have enough other options. But then that makes it less cutthroat. And then it just turns into two kind of solo-ish development development be as efficient as possible and the thing is i like that but i also feel like i'm falling down a hole of my own interest and you know to follow the stereotype it would be me and another person sort of playing relatively quietly telling each other what we're doing and having a nice time doing it but not you know it's never something i'm going to crack open and give to other people and be like hey have you tried modern board games let's do this thing um, Am so I making sense? You are. Um, I, I'm still trying to, I guess, figure out where uh, Fields of Art sits in his in Uwe Rosenberg's. You know what? So canon. am I, though. So, but you're a big fan of Caverna, right? Is that still the case? I still like Caverna, and I think uh, A Feast for Odin has become my favorite of his games. And this Ooh. is what's going to sound so strange about me saying this: is there's quite a lot of that in A Feast for Odin. There's quite a lot of your, you know, focusing on just what you are doing. But I. I don't know, the, the Tetris nature of having this homestead that you fill with all kinds of different items feels more engaging. If you're going to give me a lot more stuff that I'm doing myself, I like the stuff that I'm doing in A Face Road in, I think, probably more than I do in Caverna and more than I do in Fields of Arla. Okay, so I would have guessed that this would have been your next video review, but it sounds like it's not it, quite uh, exciting it enough. might be, because <laughs> I still like it. Okay. I just... The, no, your question about where does it fit in the canon is really good because I've come at these games like slightly out of order. And the Fields of Allah comes from, I think, 2014. So it's like I've I've jumped on maybe the latest and the best with A Feast for Odin. But now that I've skipped back to this older title, which was also like about 80 Canadian dollars when I bought it. So it's not a cheap game either. I'm like... Where does this fit? Do I recommend it to people who like this kind of thing? But then if you like this kind of thing, why not buy one or the other? I can't, you know, put work out in my head the logic of who plays this and where it goes <laughs> unless you just want more of the same thing, which is perfectly valid. Oh, but, I, we do so few video oh, reviews. Am I We're making so, any sense? You are, but I'm, I, I, we do so few video reviews these days because we put so much energy and time into picking the right game and making the script so good. You, we, we can't do this one as a video review, can we? Let me play it a bunch more because I. the other thing is, oh my goodness, I've only played it about twice so far. And I spent, like, the, the, when I first got it, I lost an entire evening punching it out and putting, like, 40 stickers on wooden cows, which <laughs> took me way longer than I thought because it came with a bunch of stickers. It's like, okay, you've got to put the, the wheat on the wheat token. You've got to put the little faces of the family people. And it's like, oh, my God, two hours have gone by. No wow. kidding. I kind of... I, yeah, back when this wasn't our job, I used to love that. And I can still totally imagine if you didn't collect many board games that you would sleeve them and make them pristine. But yeah, these days for you and me, it's just like, oh my God. Um, speaking of punching out tokens, hey, mm-hmm. hey, Paul, hey, 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 
I played Conflict of Heroes, colon, Guadalcanal. I have no right, so idea if I'm pronouncing that right. I think for, one, I think you probably have. Two, this, I know that this is a war game, and we've really enjoyed playing memoir, but war games and war-based stuff isn't something that's usually in your wheelhouse, is it? No, it's not. People might forget this, but I, I obviously, you know, we all know that wargaming, uh, well, the whole modern board game scene, uh, to some extent, to a greater or lesser extent, grew out of wargaming. Certainly Dungeons & Dragons did. Um, and wargaming has never gone away. And I think, ooh, I want to say in the years of 2014 and 2015, um, Shadow of was regularly publishing war games reviews from our fantastic war games correspondent, Matt Thrower, and trying to sort of... Crack some of them are really, open. really interesting nowadays. Oh, like, yeah. There's a lot of different mechanics going on in there. Oh, of course. I mean, we'll always talk about, uh, you know, the coin series. But yeah, just about any board game, mm-hmm. war game you choose to pick will often, you you choose to pick, you pick will probably have something cool. So Matt Thrower always told us that Conflict of Heroes was such a phenomenal uh, series and a great introduction to modern war gaming. And he described it, I think, specifically as like the next step if you want to go um, uh, nerdier and more simulationist than Memoir 44. And so Academy Games, who is a publisher that you and I love, um, have put out a new Conflict of Heroes game called Guadalcanal, which is oh, an island just off Japan, and it's the um, not just off Japan, but uh, it's yeah, a Pacific it was, island, though. Yeah, yeah, and it was the place where American troops first had contact with Japanese troops in World War Two. Um, and so you get your f- what's called a firefight book, and that is a bunch of um, real life firefights and or battles that happened in that conflict. Um, and you pick one, and away you go. And you, do you know, the silliest thing ended up striking me about Conflict of Heroes, Paul. I really did quite enjoy it. I completely agree with Matt Thrower's review that if you want um, a simulated war game... I can't speak today. A simulationist war game that models like the range of a machine gun and the experience level of every different uh, area of the Japanese army in World War II. This is perfect. It's simple. It's straightforward. Um, it's very personal is the thing. So when you mm-hmm. when a unit takes a hit, like you're aware in Memoir 44 that if you hit a unit, um, you just take one of the miniatures off and it's a little... It's It's been weakened. Yeah. So... What Conflict of Heroes does is you have a bag of tokens and the tokens say things like suppressed or cowardly or um, panicking. Um, like, And there's dozens of these. And every time a unit takes one hit, you put one of the tokens on it, but only you know what it is. So you know that those um, you know, marines you've got in the uh, jungle there are, are panicking, but your opponent doesn't. Your opponent just knows they've taken a hit. And if a unit ever takes a second hit, uh, then they're removed from the board. Um, so it's deeply thematic because it's one thing to have like a sniper open up and then uh, one of your units takes a hit and is like wounded it's way more flavorful to have a unit open up and now they are like cowering and hiding you know it really brings so much of the humanity to life but and and ridiculously, you know, what I found even more affecting were um, what are called critical hits, where you just roll high enough that a unit takes two hits and is instantly destroyed. Because mm-hmm. um, when units tend to, like, die quite slowly in Conflict of Heroes, it is astonishingly evocative to have, like, I had some uh, American soldiers that walked around a corner and found a machine gun nest, which opened up and then got a critical hit and killed them instantly. And so what's happening there in our simulation is, like, 15 men just die like that. Because they didn't know a machine gun nest was there, and like none of them really made it. 
And I found that really affecting in a way that no miniatures game that you and I have covered on Shadow Sit Down has ever affected me. I wow. really, I really found myself thinking of like it's so stupid to say because of course any war movie, you know, if you watch Band of Brothers, it really happened. But playing an individual fight where the designers have put every scrap of jungle or grass in the right place, and you, you've got the same number of men on each side, you know. It really happened. You're playing through something that really happened. And then when you finish a firefight, there's a little paragraph in the book that you then read that it says, essentially, ah, we don't know what happened in your game, but here's what really happened in actual history. And it describes how that fight went, you know, in real life. And so you find out that what happened to you closely mirrored what happened in real life or your your history deviated. Um, But my God, I've never really thought about soldiers in a game in such a almost saddening way you know which and it, it totally uh drove home the point the Matt thrower had which is that wargaming is categorically not a celebration of war and that as soon as right. you start simulating it in any detail it's the, the how sad these conflicts are is completely inescapable you know what i have i've got two thoughts sort of fired off in my brain to that and or maybe three maybe two or three the first is yeah, I get that feeling from a lot of people who are into war games. I've never been uh, that that part of the gaming scene has always been sort of peripheral, or it's been nearby to me. It's never been something I got crazy about. But when I was younger, some people played a lot more than I did, and I'd occasionally see some being played or or join in. Um, and now, as I sort of you know see the scene rolling on, it, it does seem to be full of people who are interested in the history, but yeah, they're not really excited about war, or they're not glorifying it or glorifying combat the same way like uh, young video game players might be. Yeah. It does seem like a lot of people appreciate the history and um, they they don't see it actually as just plain old en- entertainment. They do have a bit more of a sort of a reverence to it. Um, the second thing, mechanically, I think that's a wonderful idea, the idea that you choose the status that you put on a unit. So like you as as the opponent, if you strike an enemy unit, you know you've affected them somehow. You're like, right, you know, we scored a hit on those folks. But you don't know, like, are they are they injured? Are they terrified? Uh, I think that's fascinating, the idea that they could be 100 yards away in the jungle and you know you've got a couple of people, but you don't know what their response is. Yeah. That feels so human. There's a f- funny thing that um, the, the manual really has some trouble within Guadalcanal, um, within the Guadalcanal version of Conflict of Heroes because they do have to model the, uh, you know, what, what the game calls Bushido, um, or you and I might call the sort of more fanatical aspect of Japanese soldiers, which wasn't necessarily... Uh, it wasn't paralleled really anywhere in World War II, the degree to which they had essentially been, uh, you know, I don't want to say brainwashed, but their uh, loyalty to um, the emperor in World War II was was legendary. And the way that that simulated is that it's a, it's a few different ways, but one of them is that within the Japanese hit token pile, there are some tokens that just read no hit. So if the Japanese person player draws them, Oh, wow. Um, then, so it's like, you know, oh, we definitely killed two of them. They'll be afraid, say the Americans. But in reality, like, no, you just... There's even some which sends, which has them, you know, going berserk, like something out of Games Workshop. But the funny thing is, is that, like, you, you open the manual and any of these rules where you're like, oh, that's, 
you know, that's a bit like dodgy or culturally insensitive. But then you've got the author going, listen, I'm a historian and it, and I'm, I really respect, you know, the Japanese soldiers and desperately like trying to not be um, perceived as racist for having to document something that really did happen. Um, and actually, there was there was one really curious moment that struck me where in the manual it says like, you know, uh, the, fi- the final paragraph in it is something along the lines of like, you know, war is terrible and um, let's just be grateful to the Japanese and the Americans who, um, uh, who often treated prisoners of war so well. And then at the very end of the second firefight when you're reading the paragraph on what really happened, it's like... I forget even which side it was, and it kind of doesn't matter, but it was like... And of course, yes, the Japanese caught the Americans and massacred them all, or tortured such... You know, the Americans caught this Japanese person and tortured such and such. And even the the game trying to be respectful in just really trying to tell the truth from the documents that we have, it kind of... It's almost farcical because you can't be respectful because there was so much hatred and and really disgusting stuff in this conflict. Um, It's definitely all push and pull. It's entertaining and it's not, and it's respectful and it's not. And I I certainly had a good time, and I recommend Conflict of Heroes for anyone who wanted to take a look. But it it made you think. It did. It made me think. That was... Sorry, go on. Uh, yeah. No, it just it didn't make me think in like a uh, you know, philosophical way. It purely and maybe this is the best compliment I could give it, you know. You can watch Band of Brothers and you think, you know, oh, war is tough but but important or whatever nonsense. You know, like but the the only message I got away from Conflict of Heroes was this is awful. Like, this is just the worst thing. Um and there was no heroism, there was no uh there was no sort of ethics behind it or whether this was right or wrong. It was just me looking at this and going, oh, my God, this is just the worst. When I was well, quite a long time ago now, but when I was still before I'd even moved to London and I was living in Hampshire. By the way, the scenario dis- that you described happened to a friend of mine's grandfather who was American. Um, they they walked around a corner and their entire squad was machine gunned and he was the only guy who survived. Oh and it God. was just... The, the most astonishing sort of luck thing. And there were a lot of things that he did in the war that were very admirable or very brave. But that situation was always described by him as, uh, and then like, you know, passed on to the family as just like, just total luck. Just there are always situations that you could be the best possible person, you could be the worst possible person, but so many things are chance and circumstance. And literally everybody died except him this whole squad of people i think it was like eight or ten uh and he was injured and everybody else was just immediately killed and wow you know that 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 happened countless times to those people Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter Ooh, oh no <laughs> what am i doing with my life <laughs> this, oh, is, just... I, this is getting so partridge that let's we've now stick... been doing this 50 plus times and we just make noises and oh my god Let's just go with that. Ooh, let's, we're reaching into the mailbag, and within its pulsating ventricles, there is something lodged. I'm just going to remove it. Here we go. Right. Uh, hi there. Um, I've been mulling over a question and was curious, why are board games getting more expensive? For the last couple of years, Carcassonne has sat in my friendly local game shop for $40, but I recently noticed it's $45. Bigger boxes that would have been $80 are now $90. Is this an aftershock of all the consolidation in the industry, meaning the uh, the, acquiring, the acquisition of Asmodee of lots of other publishers? Or is it just Canada being at the weird end of the supply chain? 
One shop owner told me Queen Games only just realised its games were hit with the exchange rate coming into the US and then again coming into Canada. Anyway, keep up the awesome job. Cheers, Jonathan. Well, Jonathan, um, this is a complicated subject, isn't it, Paul? I was going to say, do you immediately have opinions or thoughts about this? Because like, the, the really dismissive answer is like, well, inflation and the price of everything is going up a bit. And also, you know, the, the cost of making board games goes up a bit if you want the board games to look better. Mm. Uh, but then I feel like I'm sort of being a publisher's spokesperson because I do... Board games are, I think, the build quality is getting better and inflation is a real thing, so prices creep up. But I have a feeling we both don't think that that's the only factor here, do we? No, we don't. And every time I open my mouth about this, I get in trouble. So I'm going to be very careful and just say stuff that I know for a fact. Um, What I'll tell you, Jonathan, is that it's complicated and... The board game industry is more complicated than, you know, even the music or movie industry or video games because you have uh, publishers that are different from country to country. You have distributors who are different from country to country. Sometimes those are the same companies. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes you have designers um, who make certain games that I can't mention because I was told in confidence um, who or, or design houses that will tell publishers that their game can only be sold at a certain amount. Sometimes publishers will acquire a different publisher and then do that to get the license to print a very, very well-known game so that once they're the sole distributor, then they can charge the pro- they can increase the price by a few dollars. Because if you're selling 100,000 copies of a game and you increase the price by a couple of bucks, then you, 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 know, you can do the maths. Um, and then also, I, I've heard that a huge part of it is that Chinese manufacturing, because Lord knows most board games are made in China, is gradually becoming more expensive as well. So those are a bunch of reasons that I know of. Um, but the tricky thing is that while there will be some people who, whether they are designers or publishers or distributors or just shops who will creep up the price of a game a little bit, none of them will tell you that they are doing it. And so the people who are doing it, that gets confused with people for whom manufacturing did just get more expensive. Capitalism. Yes. I mean, this is, you're right, there's a lot of different wheels turning there. And uh, everybody wants to, to a reasonable degree, everybody wants to make some money and make a profit. And then if there are extra dollars to be squeezed out here and there, some people are going to squeeze harder than others. Yes, uh, there's even there, what? How do we even bring Kickstarter into this? Because um, Kickstarter board games uh, managed to offset so much of their costs initially that they just often blow what the cost of a board game should be out of the water. Because Kickstarter means you can get uh, $80 board games for $40 during the Kickstarter, and then everyone will be talking about that like it's a cheap game, but then as soon as it hits retail, it becomes twice the price or more. Um, And then, of course, it varies from country to country. Oh my god, last episode of this podcast, I talked about preferring Splendor to Century because Splendor is the cheaper game, and we had people in the comments saying they're exactly the same price, but they lived in a different country to me. Um, So it's all madness, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a thing... I have sympathy particularly for people in Canada because it does feel like prices here occasionally get inflated. And I'm not pretending to be the authority on this, but I think some of that comes from a slightly different and slightly more limited distribution north of the border, which means a lot of Canadians just end up buying stuff sort of internationally and getting it shipped. Right. And then occasionally... Because they have to... Do you get the UK yeah, thing of when it comes over the border, you sometimes get hit by exorbitant customs charges that are more than the game itself? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, or sometimes that can be factored into the purchase. Like some people roll that 
that die to see what they get. Or you know, living in a border town like Border Town, Border City like Vancouver. Like Deadwood. People just, like Deadwood. People just drive down and just buy stuff and drive back. I mean, we have, uh, very brief aside, we have the hilarious Point Roberts near us, which is this silly little part of the United States that when they drew the border along the 49th parallel, it sticks out the bottom of Canada and it's completely isolated from the mainland of the United States and it's the equivalent of the size of a small town. But people get stuff mailed to Point Roberts and then they drive <laughs> down there and they cross the border and they pick it up. And they. some people do this. And I like I was in a Lego shop recently asking them about a certain Lego thing like I can't buy this in Canada and they were like no and we partly don't try to distribute it because people just order it from the states anyway or even drive to the states and get it and you know so it almost undercuts the point of bringing it in but you get these border guards at Point Roberts who just their whole job is talking to people like where are you going Point Roberts that's the only place I can go from here what are you doing I'm picking up something that I ordered okay <laughs> drive in it's look at it on a map it's this very small little nodule that sticks out go there you know pick up something from a post office drive back hello where have you been point roberts it's obviously the only place i could have been what did you do i picked up a package okay come back poor border guards doing this so what you're telling me is if you do want to get something illegal into canada like uh, a possum or a panda then any smuggling should be done through point roberts i haven't thought of that point roberts panda smuggling it's my entrepreneurial mind. Uh, what I will say to you as well, Jonathan, is that um, in the wake of games gradually getting more expensive, um, Shut Up and Sit Down as a body is trying to think a little more um, about prices when we do our reviews and try and compare games to you know like cheaper alternatives and keep an eye on the publishers, basically, because, of course, we work for you. Shut Up and Sit Down has no advertising and is entirely funded by donors. Um, and you can do that and you can support us at shutupandsitdown.com slash donate. Anyway, the point is that it's tricky because we often don't even know the prices of things in your country and prices fluctuate massively before and after a game actually hits retail and the recommended retail price shakes out something different. But we're going to do our best, aren't we, Paul? I just remembered that Australia exists, by the way, and the amount that Australians sometimes pay to get board games in is tear-inducing. Did you know someone is coming from New Zealand to shucks in vancouver in october yeah i did i'm gonna which give is wonderful hugely flattering unless they're wow. a lady unless they're a lady uh, mm, uh you know what i looked at <laughs> what did you look at steering away from that actually and speaking of australians um nicole hoy who is Ooh, both on great Paul. away games yes Paul. jingle what jingle Where were we? Right. Um, speaking of Australians, uh, Nicole Hoy, who's uh, known for being be, doing a bunch of things in the board game scene, but being on Great Away Games and Gamers on the Rocks, uh, she let me know about marble racing the other day. And this actually fired off a bunch of memories in my head. Oh, my goodness. We'll link to the video in the description of the podcast. It's a chap who, wait for it, are you, are you sitting down? I'm ready, Paul. He races marbles. By okay. like carving out sand courses on what looks like a sort of a sand bank on a hill. And he has a like a marble contraption where they're all held in a gate and then the marbles release and he films them as they run down these tracks. And whichever marble gets to the bottom first is the winner. And I that is that sounds about ten percent as exciting as it actually is to watch. And it's really pretty good. 
to watch all these marbles just ra- it's like luge it's like one of those sports where it, nothing apparently happens but everything goes really fast and everything goes around corners and marbles bounce over each other and they get to the end and you're weirdly invested in the black marble winning for some reason <laughs> and this guy has dozens of videos of this where he makes these courses and then he races them against each other and he's like this marble qualified for the next round and not only did I really like this and I really appreciated that he custom made all these courses and stuff, it actually threw me, it was another thing that threw me back to being a kid and like the very first almost game design experiments with friends where we would race cars or we would play with things in the garden. But it's like, uh, you know, we're going to make more of a game of this where whichever cars win this race go through to the next round and the, the winner scores 10 points and second place scores seven points and then we'll have a car championship and it was a thing that a couple of us did when we were just like six or seven years old, but we thought it was the best thing ever. And, uh, you know, we were and it was really exciting. We're pioneers and we'd like, you know, see each other at the weekend and be like, oh, let's pick up that championship that we were doing. Wait, how did you um, race the cars? It would be oh, just a wait, case of oh, like, I remember this. These were real cars, weren't they? This was during your juvenile stint. You know, as a six year old, you would steal cars and then race them uh, out by the I, Well, I yeah, I uh, grew up sort of at the top of of very top of Hampshire in the commuter belt of London. And, you know, by the age of about, I want to say about nine, you've probably killed a person, stolen a car and um, burned a house down. It's People joke, but, uh, but you grew up in a... Considering how manly <laughs> and well-spoken you are, people uh, would not believe the, the place that you grew up. It was, uh, it was, it was a, a hell, of a thing, hell of a thing getting out. Uh, it, it's mixed. Agree. I mean, there were some nice places near where i lived and some not so nice that's a discussion for another day but it, <laughs> remember it, the time I'd that i drove really... to your house at 5 a.m because we were both yes. awake and we walked through a graveyard in the fog i remember the graveyard i also remember you telling me a story of how you drove home once and like some guys on a bike just yelled something and it was oh, so yeah no, not it was, even it was just sad it was um i was going round a roundabout um looking for my exit to go home from your house after playing Dungeons and Dragons. It wasn't Dungeons and Dragons, it was Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was going round and round about and a moped pulled level with me with two people on it and they drove parallel to my car going round and round this roundabout and the person in the front was driving purely so the person on the back could sh- flip me the bird, you know, give me his middle finger um, steadily for upwards of five seconds because of course if you're driving you struggle with that but he could drive very close to my window and give me the middle finger until event which is brave considering I was in a car and he was in a moped flimsy thing anyway marble racing it's good the thing you didn't tell people is that um, the person who does this channel uh, Jelly's Marble Runs with Jelly spelled J-E-L-L-E um, is a commentator and he commentates like it's Formula One or something. Like, in fact, I'll, I'll pull some audio and put it into the, uh, the podcast now. Oh, do. But we are off. There you see confirmation down at the bottom. A couple marbles getting stuck. Oh, the ghost marble uh, appears to have pushed them free. Several marbles taking that high line. That might have been ghost plasma. No, it isn't. That is an orange marble instead. That is the number 15 starting spot of Nemo moving up into third. This is such a quick course. Bounding back and forth. Let's see who can actually get up to the lead and join these three. Pollo Loco, I think, is just right off screen. Nemo jumps into second place as they go through another classifying string. Oh, the leader gets stuck and pushed back. Now Nemo holds the lead solely in his hands. Well, I think that's what helps you get so invested and so excited. But, I, yeah, it was both hugely entertaining and it 
reminded me of those first things that I think maybe a lot of us do as kids, where we have just the basic toys that we have and we try and make some kind of framework of a game out of them. And I'd be really interested to hear, you know, any stories that other people have of equivalent things. What, it also racing? reminded me of snail racing. I don't know if you did this. But oh, we I never like, did. But that's isn't that better than marble racing? You uh, you get like four snails and you put them, you know, with an amount of kindness that you have when you're seven. <laughs> I don't know. You put them on a wall and then you put some leaves like you know two feet away from them and you're like go and one snails can actually move really fast if they want to what you end up with is like one snail goes along the wall one of them just goes off the wall one of them just stays in its shell and one of them goes in the other direction and you're like "Mm, okay that wasn't very exciting okay but then you just do it again the next weekend yeah uh, yeah that sounds fine um did you have we we've never talked on this podcast (laughs) before about just for real marbles the game of marbles how about that? I, you know what? I had some marbles when I was young. And okay. there was a brief period where people played with them in the playground at school. And I think it just seemed kind of cruel because you would end up taking other people's marbles. So I never took any to school because mm. I might lose them. That is. And I was so risk averse. Well, you would like have six. to play the game in the first place. I mean, so what? Well, the social contract in your school was so strong that you couldn't be like, I want to play marbles, but let's not play for keeps. It was like if you did I don't that, think you were a We had like the, the, the mental tenacity to make yeah. that decision. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then I just falls. played like the A-team instead. Yeah, I tell you what, if people aren't sold about... Wait, oh, you mean you would pretend you were in the A-team? Yeah, I was, I was Hannibal Smith. Mm, yeah, of course you which were. Which is George, George Papard. Uh, the uh, the thing I would say about uh, marble runs, Jesse Jelly's marble runs, by the way, by way of a parting shot, is I sort of put it on, and my, the wife and I were the wife and I. Jesus, I sound like I'm 59 years old. My <laughs> wife Lee and also me, whatever. Shut up, don't judge me. We're watching these marble run videos. And uh, at the beginning of the race, it's just like, choose your marble. And you pick like from the great names of like Reflector or El Capitan or Cobra. The same insane naming <laughs> conventions like uh, yes. like in uh, horse racing, you know. Um, but I picked my marble and, you know, I watched a couple of races and my marble didn't do very well. But then in one of the races, my marble just bounced into the lead and I screamed so loud. <laughs> and this is what I would say to, like, people. If you're not sold on the marble racing concept, uh, at the end of a day's work, get home, pop open a beer... Uh, put it on TV and get everyone in your house, be they kids, family members, roommates, whoever, to just bet on some marble racing together. And uh, Yeah, do. In, and then, I mean, you know, that's something you can follow up Eurovision with because Eurovision is tomorrow at the time oh. of this podcast oh, going live. I tell you what, one, one brief thing. Um, I might have to dig to find a link, but one of the other... <laughs> I went through a few of the videos and one of them, uh, the the drama was so palpable because (laughs) he tried to start the race and there was a false start because a bunch of the marbles got stuck together. Yeah. And it was presented entirely like it would be on TV. Like if someone jumped (laughs) the gun, they're like, oh, we have to restart the race. There's a problem. They got to restart it. And then, you know, this reminds you that this is a a guy outside cutting channels in the sand. They're like, oh, we have to stop. There's a dog on the course. (laughs) Because there is a dog on the course in the distance. And I was like, oh, I am so invested in this. 
Wow. Like the, that, that high drama of the time that there was a dog on the course. 171,000 subscribers Jelly's Marble Runs has. And, all uh, deserved. All of them deserved. Three million views on a video called Top 10 Most Thrilling Marble Race Videos. <laughs> so there you go. That uh, ah. that's, a, that's a video to start with. Right, we'll put that on. If you would like to see the links to this, that's all on shutupandsitdown.com. And if you click on Podcastle, then episode, ooh, what are we, 58? Is that right? Then you can find yeah. that. Goodness, this has been uh, a fantastic podcast. Well, we've talked about uh, the horror of war, uh, the joy of marbles, the the Dinosaur. nonsense of spores of war, and the nostalgia of dinosaurs. This mm. might be our most rounded podcast ever. Should we? Uh, should we? Te- what, what can we tease coming up on the site? Oh, I know a tease. I fe- I found out what I'm going to do my next video on. Hopefully, uh, I'll do it with Matt as a two person thing. But uh, I will just tease that it is a designer who has put out a bunch of games that Shut Up and Sit Down has recommended in the past and we've reviewed, but we've never done a video on any of this designer's games. That. Um, ooh. 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 I, I can't work out who this is. No, I bet you can't. I'll, I, what I'm going to do, actually, is um, I'm going to tell the people in the donor newsletter. So people might not know this, but as I said earlier in the podcast, Shut Up and Sit Down has no adverts and receives no money from publishers in return for editorial content, something that makes us stand apart from a lot of the commercial board game uh, reviewers. Instead, we are kept entirely alive by listeners like you. Yes, you, the person listening to this on the bus, in their room, having dinner, in the bath, whatever. Um, So if you would just like to kick Shut Up and Sit Down, just a few dollars a month for all the videos and written content and podcasts and research that we do, then you can do that on shutupandsitdown.com. And then, and then, we send you a fabulous monthly newsletter with uh, games we're going to cover so you can maybe make sure you buy them before they sell out. Uh, We gave, like, for example, donors early access to the tickets at uh, shutupandsitdown.com. When we first started selling T-shirts, the donors got a voucher off. And then there's just, like, in every newsletter, it's got what myself, Paul, and Matt are reading, what books we're reading, what TV we're watching, what music we're listening to. Um, yeah, so, just asides about our life or, or things we couldn't squeeze into the podcast or into the news or things like this. Yes, exactly. And you have started enjoying the... Did you tell me you've been enjoying writing the newsletter more than anything else that we do? It's because it's kind of like... Uh, it has to be relatively short, and I have to be, you know, be careful not to just go off on some crazy tangent. But it's it's like a, a tiny writing challenge. In fact, I should probably do one soon because there'll be one coming up. But it's a what? tiny writing challenge where it's like write a couple of hundred words about a thing or a thing that's interesting. Um, but it's got to be sort of tangentially related to games or our lives. And it's a cool little challenge. I like it, and I actually really enjoy seeing what you and, and Matt have to write about as well. Ah, oh, it's it's really quite cool. I had a great thing where I told um uh some donors my latest hobby that I'm interested in, and I mentioned a book I'd bought on it. And sure enough, one of our donors did exactly what I wanted, which was wrote in and said, "If you enjoyed that book, it's not very good. Here's the other book you should get," <laughs> and gave me like advice. And he apologized and said, "Like I really hope this isn't too rude, but no, sir, it was exactly what I wanted." And thank you very much. Um, so this podcast is going live on 12th of May. 
we'll probably pull all our donor newsletter, all our donor email addresses for this month on maybe the 16th or the 17th of May. So if you donate in the next five or six days, you can get in on that. Um, and if you miss that date, don't worry because we're going to be doing these newsletters uh, for the foreseeable future. So as long as you yeah. throw us money in any month, you get the newsletter and you can have a sneaky behind-the-scenes read of Shut Up and Sit Down. I was going to say that's it's very often a thing, isn't it? That we basically we tell you what's coming, we ruin it all. Well, the funny thing is that sometimes you know we'll get ahead of ourselves and be like, "Donors, we're going to review this game. It's going to be awesome," and then it never appears on Shut Up and Sit Down because like what happens is I actually play it and I'll be like, "It won't be very good." So it's a it's all kinds of no. it's a hot mess, but a very carefully constructed hot mess like a baked Alaska. Um, Speaking of a hot mess, someone has just broken into a car or something. I've got some crazy car alarm going off here. I better, I can, I better run. I could actually hear that on the mic. Yeah, it's uh, it's another one of those car stealing um, people from your past. They followed you. It's like yeah. Fast and the Furious. Um, so I'm going to let you get on with your Hollywood blockbuster while I make a roasted garlic tart because I'm middle class mm. till I die. <laughs> Do you remember that ACDC song, Middle Class Till I Die? Uh, mm. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Uh, I've been Quentin Smith. I'm still Paul Dean. That'll never change. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.